0: We're going to dive right into the text. So Mark chapter 10, we stopped in verse 45 last night. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We looked at spiritual immaturity and we talked about selfishness and arrogance, ignorance and jealousy And I hope that our time in the word last night pierced your hearts and made you think and consider how am I failing to live in a way that honors God because I am so caught up in the things of this world in the God that I want to grant my wishes and the God that I want. And when he stops doing what I want, I stop caring about him. Mark chapter 10, tonight, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <coughs> familiar words for our weekend. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And look at the way that he went. He followed him, Jesus, on the way. Tonight we are going to be looking at this event that happens right at the end of Jesus' life. Mark chapter 10, he is, it says, leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. If you look at the very next verse, it is the triumphal entry. What does that mean? We are under 10 days between Jesus going to Jerusalem, being crucified, and raising again. This is the prime time of Jesus' ministry. It's all coming to this. Two and a half years have led up to this scene. Jesus, on when he approaches Jerusalem, when he gets into Jerusalem, remember, he will enter with shouts of praise, honoring him. And then on that Friday, he will be crucified with shouts of blasphemer and reviling. He will be mocked and beaten, spit upon Jesus, it says, is leaving, and I want to kind of set the scene for us. He is leaving Jericho, and he is about to embark on what is referred to as the Ascent of Blood. It is an 18-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, and there's a lot of uphill. I Don't hold me to this. I think it's about 3,000 feet uphill that it takes place over these 18 miles. It is an uphill climb, walk, And they call it the Ascent of Blood because this road is filled with many robbers and thieves. It's actually the strip of land that Jesus, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, places that story. Remember the man that is beaten and left for dead on the side of the road? That is because he was walking the Ascent of Blood. He was walking what Jesus is about to walk by himself. But Jesus is not by himself. There's a crowd. There's a crowd with him, gathered all around him. And I'm sure some are there because he's Jesus and they want to see him do miracles. They want to hear his teaching. They want to see his compassion. But others are just there because it's religious festival season, all right? It is holiday season and everybody is making their way for the Passover to Jerusalem. This crowd is interesting because Mark has talked about crowds throughout his journey of a gospel. The crowds often cause problems for Jesus. Aaron and I, in our discipleship time, we're talking about this. He asked a question, like, is is Jesus frustrated with them? Because it sure seems like it. If you read through the book of Mark, it does come off like these crowds keep messing up Jesus' plan. And see, what would happen is Jesus would walk in. He would heal someone. And then he would say, hey, don't go tell anybody about it. That's mind-boggling to us because if we do something great, we want everybody to know about it. We would have posted on our story and we would have said, hey, encourage, we really want to follow this Jesus guy and find out where he's going to be because he can do these great things. Jesus understands that his ministry is to teach and to lead people to salvation, not just to fix their broken lives. And so the crowds sometimes create some issues for Jesus to maintain his mission. He desires to teach and they want their life fixed. And so it came to a point that Jesus could not even enter cities without uh, the crowd surrounding him. he couldn't get to the synagogue to teach because everybody wanted to bring their brother, their cousin, and their mother to him so that they could be healed. But it's the crowd that is now surrounding Jesus. He is on his way, walking, and then we enter in blind Bartimaeus. This beggar on the side of the road, think of a homeless man or woman sitting at a busy intersection with their coat laid out in front of them, rattling a coin uh, cup so that you may look in their direction and show compassion or charity to them. This is who Bartimaeus is. The commotion of Jesus being on this road has gotten to him. He knows that it is Jesus. Somehow the word has gotten out. Jesus is coming by. And Bartimaeus begins to make this scene. And tonight we are going to be looking at lessons from a blind man. We need to learn from this person that we often overlook and step around. We need to learn from this person who is the least and the last. We need to see and understand what he saw. Because there is great truth in the life of Bartimaeus. I've got, I think there are four points tonight. We'll see. The first one that I have is this. Our condition or our circumstance is not a cop-out. Our condition or our circumstance is not an excuse for us. Bartimaeus is blind. He is helpless and hopeless. He is forgotten and he is avoided. He cannot work. He cannot make a living. Oh, gosh, that was Alabama coming out. He cannot, Kelly's smiling because she knows that. And she was like, that was normal. Yeah. He can't, he can't take care of himself. He depends on the charity of others. And yet, his physical blindness did not cause him spiritual blindness. Bartimaeus sees what no one else sees the crowd that all have great vision. Look at Jesus as maybe a miracle worker, a great teacher, a guy that's controversial, so we want to watch, a guy that we need to question on his theology, but it is the blind man who sees Jesus for who he is. He can see past what all of the commotion is about, and he sees Jesus. Here's how we know. He begins to yell out in the darkness, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. That yelling out in the darkness uh, makes me think of this game that I play at our house. It's really a solo game um, that Carlin has to participate in. Um, What happens is, maybe it's late at night or uh, something, and I'm in the kitchen, and the lights are off, and then Carlin comes into the kitchen... And so what I do is I either duck down behind the cabinets, or I step into the pantry where she can't see me, or maybe it's in the hallway and I get into a room so that when she walks by, I jump out and scare her. Do we? This is a game we play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a single-player game, um, but others are included. Uh, the what's interesting though is that because I've gotten so good at the game and Caroline has caught on that there are times now where she suspects that I am in there. So she walks into the room, into the darkness, and before she's you know, really able to go all the way in, she goes, Jordan, I know you're in there. Don't try to scare me. It's not going to work. I know where you are. Don't do it. And so she's just calling out, looking to either side, going, Jordan, I don't see you, but you just need to stop. And then there are these special days <laughs> where I'm not even in that room, and she thinks I am. I <laughs> am. And she, in the darkness, is just calling out to either side of the room, Jordan, this isn't funny, okay? (laughs) You just need to come out and let's just not even play. Bartimaeus is sitting there with complete darkness and yelling out, not knowing where Jesus is, but knowing he needs to get his voice heard. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Into the darkness he is crying out, yelling out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now some of you are probably sitting there going, Bartimaeus might be a little confused right now. Because Jesus is the son of Mary and Joseph, not the son of David. And you may be going, I think Bartimaeus, you've gotten your Jesuses confused here. But that's not the case. See, Bartimaeus understands and begins to place this modern-day teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, with the prophesied king that was to come from the lineage of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a promise, a covenant made to David that says, you, the king, are going to have an offspring that I send you, a son of mine, that will come and that will sit and reign on my throne forever. And Bartimaeus understands Jesus to be this sent one, the Messiah, the one who will reign as the king of Israel. And Bartimaeus connects then that the one who is sent by God can do the things of God or be like God. So he can set captives free. He can overcome darkness. He can recover my sight not being able to physically see, did not limit Bartimaeus in any way to see the obvious truth in his midst that Jesus is the sent one. And so he begins to cry out, Have mercy on me. Act with the compassion of God towards me. Show me the love, the mercy, and the kindness of God because you have it in you. Here's my first question tonight for us. What circumstances do you deem impossible for God to remedy? What situations are you wallowing in that you deny that God can work? What condition do you carry that you think is too great for God? What circumstances blinding you from God? See, I fear that in our spiritual darkness, we do not see that God is walking down the road saying, what do you want me to do for you? And so we make our excuses based on our conditions. The second thing that we have, and I'm not really good at my points being parallel in any way tonight, so just write them down and just go with it. I didn't have that time and nor creativity this week. The second one is persist, persist, persist. Persist. Figured we should write it three times. One of them's gonna rhyme, so just hold on for that one. <laughs> that one, I guess, rhymes. But <laughs> verse 48. And many rebuked him. The crowd is tired of Bartimaeus. They rebuked him and told him to shut up. The crowd is jaded by the plight of the people all around them, and they are numb to the I mean, to the idea that a beggar is on the side of the road so much so that they prefer him be quiet than for him to be healed. They have become so callous to the hurts and the needs of those around them that they don't want him to have a chance with Jesus. Instead, they just want him to shut up. This isn't just the crowd's problem. Remember back in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, these parents are bringing their children to Jesus, and it says, so that he may touch them to bless him or heal them. And what do the disciples do? They say, no, no, he's too busy Take those kids away. He doesn't want to be around them. The disciples rebuked these parents for this. And what does Jesus do? He becomes indignant and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus is a busy man. He has many important appointments. I mean, the cross is coming up. And yet, Bartimaeus is not slowed down. He persists, persists, persists. He cries out all the more in the face of their rebukes, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. The opinions of men paled in comparison to the opportunity that he had at hand. Jesus is walking down the road. Jesus can heal me. Jesus can save me. I don't care what scene I make. I don't care what others think. I'm not missing this opportunity because Jesus is more powerful and better than everything else. I'm not going to let him pass me by. Jesus, have mercy on me. He doesn't know if he's far off, if he's right in front of him, or if he's already passed. He's going to keep yelling into the darkness, Jesus, stop for me. Don't pass me by. Have mercy on me. The question I have in this section is, what in your life quiets you from calling out to Jesus? Is it a relationship? be it a boyfriend or a girlfriend who discourages your faith? Is it roommates or friends who complain every time that you choose to be a part of a small group or you're going away or stepping out of doing what they are doing? Is it parents who are so confused by the fact that you are wanting to follow God rather than pursue the major they had set up for you? What are the things that are quieting you and rebuking you and telling you to shut up when you're saying, hey, I want to talk about Jesus. What are the enemies to your faithfulness? Because we all have them. Maybe it's internal pride or selfishness. But for a lot of us, it's external. People who literally discourage us. Who tell us he doesn't have time for you. He doesn't care about you. Why are you wasting your time with that? Bartimaeus was not to be stopped. He kept yelling and kept yelling and kept yelling. And then in verse 49 Jesus stopped. Jesus has a lot on his plate right now. He's got a world to save. He's got a busy week of trials to go through and a lot of teachings to do. He's got a cross to climb up, and then he has some resurrection to be doing. He's got a great mission ahead. This is what he has come to this earth for. He's about to fight the, fight the final battle, and yet he stops. Not for an emperor, not for some uh, major ruler, not for some important person. He stops for the blind beggar on the side of the road, the overlooked and the stepped around. He hears his cry. How many times do we tell ourselves that God doesn't really care, that he's not really listening, and yet here we see Jesus stopping for the individual? The next one, number three, as we fly through these. No appeal, no heal. Told you it would rhyme. See, Bartimaeus isn't on the itinerary for the day it's not in Jesus' day plan or on his calendar, hey, when we get to this place, there's going to be somebody that we need to talk to. The disciples aren't ready for this detour or this pit stop. I'm sure they're going, hey, we're trying to make good time. We've already got out. We got a little slow out of the gate, and now we just need to get there. If it gets dark on this path, it is really dangerous, Jesus, and so we need to be in a hurry. We need to get going. And yet, Jesus stopped. This idea of no appeal, no hill. I want to illustrate this way. You probably understand this, and you will understand it more when you get married. We get to this place where we expect others to know what we want even before we ask for it. So like, for instance, we complain when a roommate has their music on at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Because we expect them, shouldn't they know, to just turn it down? Shouldn't they be respectful and courteous? We complain or we expect a roommate to to walk in and to maybe not flip the lights on at 2 a.m. in the morning. So that I'm already asleep and how can we share a space? We expect these things in this common courtesy. When you get married, it's going to be the same way. We begin to expect that person to know what we want before we say it even before we know we want it, so that when we want it, it is there for us, right? We expect without asking. And I think that's how we treat God oftentimes. He should just know, shouldn't he? What I want when I want it. If I'm blind, of course I want to be healed. Part of me wonders, you know, there's this, This idea that could have set in Bartimaeus where he just sits on the side of the road and he goes, well, if Jesus is really Jesus, if he's really good, if he's really loving, if he's really kind, if he's really compassionate, then he's going to know that I want to be healed, so I'm going to sit here and put him to the test. I'm going to sit here and see if he's actually going to do it. And so we put God into this box of going, I expect you to work even before I ask you to work. I wonder how many blind men and women in Jesus' day remained blind because they just sat on the side of the road rather than calling out. I fear how many broken people sit in our midst because they expect God to work and they don't request God to work. How many addicted and hurting and lonely and frustrated people are sitting around us or are in our environments throughout the week because they expect God to work, but they've never taken the time to humbly ask Him to work? No appeal, no heal. It's a terrible point, but you get the point. The fourth one is this ask for help. It's very similar, but I think we need to hear this very explicitly. We need to learn to ask for help. So this semester, I started off the, uh, our leadership team with this one question. I looked at all of our leaders and I said this. How many of you would say that the fall 19th semester was the hardest semester of your life? Some hands shot up immediately. Others slowly came up and they were like, yeah, it was. You could see on their faces. The difficulty as they recalled and replayed what they had just gone through. I was shocked by how many, over half of them, raised their hand and very few of them had ever brought me in on that. And many I had seen in my office throughout the weeks. I had seen in our home. I had texted or chatted with and yet I didn't know the pains that they were walking through, the difficulty of what was going on in their life. But what I am learning is that we don't want to ask for help in the middle of our difficulties. I taught this back in August to our whole church that we need to learn uh, to be willing to be carried to Jesus at times. There's this story of the paralytic. Remember he has four friends that carry him and lower him down from a roof. If I'm being honest, I would have told my friends, ah, let's just not worry about it. That's too much to ask of you. When they get to the house and it's full and they can't even get to Jesus, I would have been like, we tried, guys. We gave it the best effort. It's just not going to be our day. Maybe Jesus will walk by one other day. And then they go up on the roof and they lower him down. See, I think we're too prideful to allow others to do that for us. The, one of the things that I taught in that, and it's just been a truth that I really do believe, is that we really like to be a prayer, and we absolutely hate to be a prayer request. any real things. We don't mind sharing about an aunt and uncle some far off that has a a surgery coming up, you know, just something cosmetic. No, we don't mind just saying, well, my roommate's kind of struggling through this, but to say that I am hurting and I am in need of anything? See, our three wishes last night revealed this, right? We don't want dependency on God. We want total independence. And then when we do ask, (laughs) we ask in such generalized and simplified and covert language that we're afraid to even say what we need. See, here's how it goes. God, will you help me with purity? Instead of saying, God, I'm addicted to pornography and I can't get out of it. We say, God, I, I just need to love better those around me. Instead of saying, my anger and bitterness has ruined my relationship with my roommate, and I am that fault. We say, God, forgive my debts, you know, but we never admit, here is how I have sinned against you, God, and list out explicitly the things that we have done that are unholy and unrighteous. We carry that into a small group, and we say, hey, will you guys pray for my dad? And we don't say... Because I feel completely abandoned by him. And I don't know what to do. We say, hey, will you pray for my roommate or my friend or my sibling? They're just going through a hard time and not. I don't know where they are in the church with salvation. Where they are with community. And their life is in complete shambles. And I, I can't admit that to you guys. And so we generalize and simplify. We don't want to be honest. And I love what Jesus says. It's the same question we saw last night. He says, what do you want from me? I'm sure the crowd was a little puzzled, right? Well, he's blind, Jesus. You've been pretty good at reading minds. You've been pretty adept in all of these things throughout your ministry Can't you uh, notice this one? And yet, I think Jesus is making him state it explicitly. What do you want from me? Even to the brothers last night, he says that. What do you want from me? What can I do for you? And Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, he uses actually a stronger term in the Greek than just teacher. It's more my Lord. He says, Rabbi, recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. I love how New Living translates it. I want to see. Are we ever that honest with God? I want to see. I I want a job. I need some money. I don't know how to handle this. I need friends. Our final point tonight is this. We can we need to appeal. We need to ask. We need to persist. But we've got to also trust the one we're asking. I fear for too many times that we just throw something out and hope it works. But Bartimaeus is seen trusting. Jesus says, "Your faith has made you well." Verse 52. The faith of the person of Bartimaeus here is what heals him. A lack of faith necessarily or necessitates maybe a lack of healing, right? I am not calling for this name it or claim it theology, that if you just say it, God will make it happen, that if you believe enough and hard enough, then whatever you ask works. No, God is not the genie. We talked about that last night. He's not going to act against his character or against his nature. He's not going to just fulfill your sinful desires. But faith does work. And I was confused by this point where it says that he throws off his cloak. I don't know if any of you saw that. He throws off his cloak and he springs up and runs to Jesus or goes to Jesus. What is that? His cloak would have been laid out in front of him as he sat on the ground. In a modern day way, it would have been his guitar case sitting out in front of him or his Folgers can. You know, like collecting for him all the charity of the people. And when he hears Jesus is calling him, he throws it off. Why? He doesn't need that anymore. He's no longer dependent on those things because Jesus is about to transform his life. He fully believes when he hears that Jesus is calling him that his life is radically going to be different and he doesn't need what's sitting on that cloak anymore because he is going to be changed forever now. So he throws it off and he goes to Jesus. It's interesting that it seems like Jesus answers Bartimaeus, but he didn't, the brothers. He asked him the same thing. Why? What do you want from me? The brothers asked for something selfish. Bartimaeus, I mean, he's asking for healing. It seems somewhat selfish. Here's where I see the difference. The brothers are desiring power and prestige for themselves, to rule and to reign over others. Bartimaeus is asking for Jesus to show him the compassion that God shows to those that are hurting in need of healing. He makes his request fit within the parameters of how God desires to act. He's not asking, God, give me a billion dollars. He's saying, God, give me my daily bread. God, take care of me as you promise that you will. If you get nothing else from this weekend, I hope that this phrase sticks with you. God can, will, will. And wants to work for your good and for his glory. I fear that many of us struggle to believe that. God can, will, and wants to work for your good and his glory. God can. He is able, no matter your condition, no matter your circumstance, to overcome it. God will. He does not forsake his people, he loves us, he does not abandon us. He will work. It may not be what we want exactly, but he will work when we ask him, and he wants to. Earlier, I think it's in the book of Mark, it may be in Luke, it says that he is like a father. And see, we know of earthly fathers who give good gifts. When their son asks for a fish, he doesn't give him a snake, is what Jesus says, I believe. But and then He transition, he goes, if our earthly fathers can do that, how much more will our heavenly father, who has unlimited ability, do On behalf of his children. He wants to. Because he loves us and cares for us. God can, will, and wants to work for your good. He is not a sadistic ruler seeking to harm us or watch us suffer. He wants to work for our good. But he doesn't just give us good, 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 good. He blesses us on purpose. So that he may, through those blessings, bless others. So. I want to end with this challenge tonight. I think there's some lessons from Bartimaeus that we need to hear. Because we continue to fall into this same trap of, well, God should just do it for me. We fall into this same trap of, I don't think he can handle it. We fall into this same trap of, I don't really know if he's going to do it or not. What I saw when I talked with our leadership this semester is that for so many of us, we struggle to depend on God. We don't know what that looks like, nor do we really want it. We want self-sufficiency. We want to be strong enough to handle whatever comes at us and not need God or anything else. Remember my three wishes? All move so that I don't need God anymore. So, I'm going to challenge you to begin to ask of God. And you're not going to always be in the perfect heart place to ask, but I challenge you to still do it. In your frustrations and in your joy, ask. When you're full of faith and when you're praying through your doubts, ask. When you need sight in the darkness or sound in the silence, you need to ask. When you need directions in your wandering, when you need courage to step out of the comfort that you're sitting in, when you need strength when that you are spent, when you need boldness because you have great fears, when you need faith because of your doubts, when you need answers in the mystery, ask. Let's get them a little more personal. Ask for presence in your loneliness. Ask for peace in your anxiety. Ask for rest in your hurry and a breath in your busy. Because we all are feeling that. I know that you guys are walking through a lot of serious and difficult things. School, if that's all that it was, would be hard enough for so many. Just keeping up and doing the grades and doing the homework and passing the tests. But then you throw on top of that, well, I need to do good enough in this so that I can get the job. Then you throw on top of that the, uh, the way all of your other friends seem to be doing so much better. Then you throw on top of that expectations that your brother or sister created. Then you throw on top of that that your parents expect or they have this uh, goal for you. Then you throw on top of that that you need to work because you don't have a way to pay for school maybe like others can and so you need to figure out a way to sustain yourself then you throw on top of that that you now have signed up for responsibilities because not only do you need to be involved in church but you need to be involved in certain social clubs or whatever the ones they call them the uh, academic clubs i can't know what they call it right this second i've got to be a part of these things because if i'm not in this society then i can't get into this master school and if i can't get into this master school then why am i even here And then on top of all of this, you have the normal hurts of being an 18- to 22-year-old. You throw on top of that the normal hurts of having a family. You throw on top of that trying to live with some stranger who comes from a different family than you do. And all of these things compound into these real and painful and deep hurts. And you don't know where to turn. And you're fighting alone. And then you throw on top of that mental illness that is just dominating the college campus right now. And we put our hopes that maybe this will work, but it doesn't seem to. And I don't know where to turn. And our hope begins to shrink the light begins to dim, and the pains of life begin to get so great that we don't even know what to do. Our whole college experience feels like a great disappointment. So I challenge you to start asking. Asking the one who can, who will, and who wants to work for your good and for his glory. Don't sit in the toughest semester of your life alone just trying to get through it. Don't wallow in the depression that is wrecking your life by yourself. Don't fight these battles against temptation and sin or whatever things are coming at you as a solo army. Ask. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do you have a journal, um, I encourage you to write these things down. I want you to start thinking in categories as you pray. So the first thing I want you to pray, and I really would love to see this becoming part of your prayer life, is what is, or what are, the big things that I am praying for God to do, that only He can do? What are big things? I don't know what that is for you, but I know that you know what it is. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's mental illness. Maybe it is addiction. Maybe it is financial. But what is these big things that every day when you wake up, it rests upon you and suffocates you? Next, I want you to start praying for the small things. The things that you think are petty. The things that you think are not that big of a deal, but you realize they are just draining you. They are sucking the life out of you because these small things continue to rear their ugly heads. Maybe it is every time you walk in to your dorm, there is a backpack right where you want to step and you just can't get over that. What are these small things that are just robbing you? third thing I want you to start praying for is what's a sin in your life that you need God to work through? You've tried to fight it alone. Is it jealousy? Is it arrogance? Is it selfishness? Is it gossip? Is it slander? Is it discouragement of others? Is it uh, immorality or... Vulgarity. I don't know what it is for you, but what is a sin that you've got to be honest and say, God, I need you to work. I've been trying this alone. The final category that I have right now, and you can always add more, because I think categorical praying causes us to go, okay, yeah, I do need to be thinking big. I do need to be thinking small. I do need to be thinking about sin. The final one I have is, who's a person you need to be praying These last few weeks we've been sitting in, who is saved and can I lose my salvation and how do I know if I'm saved? and Those become very challenging things that it's really hard to just leave those on Sunday morning. It's been really fun talking with uh, the Gallows, Marty and Danielle Gallo who have started teaching with us. And the Clings who have started teaching with us. Because they begin to bring up to me on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Man, what we're talking about is hard. It's making me think through this. I hope that it's forcing you, not because of the pain that it draws out, but because of the reality that we need and we hope that we see people repent and believe. So who's a person you need to be praying for? Maybe it's not for their salvation, but maybe it is for them to find community or to be reconciled in relationship. I don't know, but who is that person that you need to be praying for? I think if you will take these moments to categorically pray, it will help us to understand and help us to start being honest with our God about what we need Him to do, because I'm tired of us just saying, God, will you fix my life? I truly believe that when Jesus has asked in the past two nights, What do you want me to do for you? I think he asks us the same thing, and I don't think we answer it very well. Our good Father, who wants to pour himself out for us, desires us to ask. And here we are sitting around. So... Hopefully you begin to think and can fill in some of those categories and I think those categories will change throughout the days, the weeks, the months. But pray big. Pray small. Pray against sin and pray for a person.